In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Ira Glass, he's the host of This American Life on NPR. And I may have referenced this episode from several years ago, but in uh, episode 507, the first part of that episode is a, a segment called Confessions, in which Ira Glass does an interview with a Catholic priest who talks about his experiences of taking people's confessional, which you would think, all right, interesting topic, but there's a certain um, uniqueness about the kinds of confessions that this segment devotes its attention to. So I'm going to play you for for maybe first minute of Ira setting this up about what's going on and then kind of what's involved in what that Catholic priest shares. So just listen for a second. Here's a question that I wasn't sure if it was appropriate to ask a priest, but I had a priest in the studio and I asked the question, and the priest... Father Tom Santa from St. Michael's Church in Old Town in Chicago was kind enough to humor me. My question was, in confession, do people ever confess things to you that it's hard not to roll your eyes at? (laughs) In the front of them? No. But yes. I had uh, one person, I won't tell you what city because he might be listening, um, who would come in and every single confession would confess that he laughed in church. And I asked him, why do you laugh in church? He said, because Father tells jokes. (laughs) And I said, Father wants you to laugh in church. Well, you're not allowed to laugh in church. If you're not allowed to laugh in church, then Father wouldn't be telling you jokes. I know that's his problem, not mine. (laughs) (laughs) So now you're all guilty. And that whole episode goes on to document even more examples from that priest's experience of people who come into confessional and the thread line that goes through all of their confessions is that they've brought all sorts of things and put it into a moral basket. So now laughing in church, that's a, that's a moral question. Or what a housewife makes for her family for dinner, that becomes a moral question. And the whole segment is full of laughter and a little bit of lament about a condition that is real that some of you in the professional world may have heard of. And it's, here's the big word for today, class. It's the word scrupulosity. Some people will wash hands incessantly because they feel like they have to. Scrupulosity defines someone who, again, starts to take so much of life and starts to put it in a moral basket and now everything is an obsession for them about whether it is moral or immoral. For instance, laughing in church. This American life always does a great job of bringing you into corners of this world that you never would known have existed. In that way, it's entertaining, it's informative, it's provocative, and on this segment and every segment, check, 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 it does all those things. But as I thought more about what that segment is about, There's two kinds of people that are in play here in a segment like that. Those that obsess about sin and those who listen to a segment like that who, who, to to be fair, probably have a moral grid but who think of sin as this word sin or idea of sin is kind of a throwback to an earlier day. We've kind of moved on from there. Can we just pass on the whole concept? And the question is, if you're a Christian, can we live between... Are those our only choices, Right? Do we have to obsess about sin, or do we have to treat sin as a trifling? Clearly, as a Christian, it is possible for us to think of sin in such a way that it is too hard 
this bed is too hard, Goldilocks. But there's also a way of thinking about sin that is too soft, that is too presumptuous. This bed is too soft, Goldilocks. And that's why I think we need the Holy Spirit, among other reasons. And that's why we've been devoting a really long while, and we'll continue to devote our attention for as long as we need to, on what does the Holy Spirit think about things like sin? When I was last up here, we mentioned how the, the Holy Spirit has more in mind than your moral life. We talked about the Spirit's involvement in our thinking about our happiness and about our hope. The Spirit has more in mind than your moral life, but not less. And so this morning, we're going to kind of back up into Romans 8 for just a little bit longer and consider how is the Holy Spirit involved in our moral life in an important way that keeps us from either obsessing about sin, but also to avoid thinking of it as a trifling. If we're not in the middle, we don't get it, and we miss the purpose of the Spirit. This whole passage, a grand total of six verses, I think you could distill it down into one sentence that I hope is not too clever for your own good, and it's this. Fight to follow from a filial affection. Oh, how clever. Fight to follow from a filial affection. I know, part of that's like, huh? It's okay. That's why we're here. That's why I'm here. We want to break it down into three things. What does it mean to fight to follow? What does that mean? What is fighting to follow in a filial way as opposed to what? Just wait and see. And then finally, what does it mean to fight in a filial way with a spiritual, capital S, affection? That's our task. That's our burden in those three ways. So we're going to back up into Romans 8, start at verse 12. I wonder if you could stand. We'll give our attention. Romans 8, starting at verse 12. So then, brethren, we're debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. So far uh, in our pathway through Romans 8, he's making several contrasts, and one contrast that we introduced in previous weeks is this contrast between a life that's according to the flesh and a life that's according to the spirit. And just to refresh your memory about what that contrast means, it's kind of opaque and obviously ancient in meaning, uh, the life according to the flesh is a life that is dominated by our weakness. It is a frailty that is true of all of us and it is dominated by an obsessive interest in ourself into fleeting pleasures, into idolatry, into any number of things that will not prevail, that will not last, but in the moment they sure feel like they do. 
a life according to the flesh. Leon Morris, he's a, a commentator on Romans chapter 8. He says, um, there is a living that is death. And we'll finish that punchline a little bit later. But life according to the flesh is a form of living, of existing, of seeing, of operating, of feeling, of thinking, of all those things. That is, it's got death embedded in it. It's a death before you die. That's life according to the flesh. Life according to the spirit is being awakened and being astonished about the holiness and the goodness of God through what we have in Jesus. It is full of understanding of what he has done and it is full of the sense of God in the mercy that comes to us in the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's a life according to the Spirit. Life according to the flesh, you hear him speak about deeds of the body. That's shorthand for sin. Let's see if, though, we can kind of remove the idea of sin out of the abstract. Sin, capital S, dun-dun-dun-dun. Let's, let's just talk about it in really generic, <clears throat> or not generic, really concrete and familiar terms. And let's just rewind the tape from Romans 8 and go back to Matthew 5 through 7 and talk about Jesus' most famous set of words, the Sermon on the Mount. And let's harvest just a few things from the Sermon on the Mount that might suggest to us that sin is not a trifling matter, but also ought not be our obsession. Think about angry words. He warns about angry words. Angry words come from an angry heart. And the nature of who we are, the nature of our condition, you and I can store up angry words and sharpen them like an axe blade. And we are ready. We are ready to hurl them. And what we're not aware, the more we do that, the more we prepare that, the more we brood on that, is the more that they're beginning to shape our hearts in ways that we are unaware of. And when that flies from you, it plants something in you. And therefore, it is a sin Jesus is calling out. It's not something you can roll your eyes at. Okay, fine, let's talk about what Jesus means when he says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. In other words, talk up straight. Say what you mean. Don't alter the truth. Don't misuse the truth. Tell me the truth. Use the truth. What, you know, people's like, well, duh, right, it's optimal, why wouldn't we do that? Well, if Jesus wouldn't need to say it unless we were all tempted to do the exact opposite. And here's the problem. When you don't abide by what he's saying in that, when you learn not to tell the truth, you know what you're teaching your soul to do is not to be able to even distinguish what is the truth from a lie anymore. You warp your grid such that now you're telling lies and you don't even know it. Yeah, roll your eyes at that. Blow that off, laugh at people that come to confessional and say, I don't know if I can tell the truth anymore. No, you can't. And then perhaps what is perhaps the most slap your head misunderstanding of any passage in the Sermon on the Mount. Judge not, lest ye be judged, in Matthew 7. People will hear that and they'll stop there and they'll say, see, you should never make moral judgments of anybody. Mm, no, no. Jesus is not decrying moral judgments. He's decrying the act or the impulse to make moral judgments that lack first a look inward. And so he rolls off that Matthew 7 line. He says, look, take the log out of your own eye first, and then, then you will see clearly how to take the speck out of your brother's eye. 
It's not like moral judgments are all collapsed and you and I should just sort of say, well, live and let live. Well, just you do you. It's this. Before you start calling out, you better look in first. Because if you don't look in first, not only are you operating from a self-righteous hypocrisy, you're not helpful to anyone. All of those, every single one of those, Jesus is saying, look, that's sin, and it's not a trifling. You do have to give your attention to it. You can't blow it off. You can't just sort of hand wave it away. Oh, those are just old, obsolete ideas. No, they're not. Try it. Jesus is arguing what Paul is saying here. Sin is a real thing. Sin matters. And just like what Paul is saying, in order to follow Jesus, that's going to be a fight. It ain't no walk in the park. To do as he's asked us to do, to walk in his way, you should expect a fight. It will not be easy. It never has been. And so he will say there, kind of oddly there, at the very first of our text there in Romans chapter 8, he says this, um, we are no longer debtors, we're, we're debtors, but not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Now, it's kind of a funny way of putting it. When he says we're, not, we're debtors, but not to the flesh, he's saying you're, you're under no obligation to continue to live into those impulses that reveal your frailty. You're no longer obliged, you no longer owe it anything. There's, I think there's another way of saying it. He says, look, there's a strong pull to angry words and lying, and self-righteous indignation. There's a strong pull to whatever else Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Lust, favoritism, giving the appearance of religiosity, but going behind your closed doors and defying that and defaming it. There's a strong pull to all of that, and you kind of feel like, I gotta go there. And Paul is saying, no, no, things are different now. You're no longer obliged to... Find satisfaction in those things. Not only are you not debtors to the flesh, but he says this, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Strong words. Put to death the deeds of the body. Shorthand there. Deeds of the body for sin. The things that believe in the body alone and nothing else. The deeds that think this is as good as it gets. You better get what you can in the time that you have. There's nothing awaiting you. There's no goodness on any other side and certainly not in your future, so go. That's deeds of the body. And it's a strong pull. And you have to put them to death. In other words, there's no, well, nice little sin. We'll get around to it. They're there. They're there. We'll, we'll, I'll, yeah. Uh, Man, back in the 80s, I was in Washington, D.C., and I got a T-shirt that had a picture of a senator that had just now been, had to resign due to a problem, and he had his picture on there, and it, and it said underneath there, I'll quit tomorrow. Um, it's what we say. I'll quit tomorrow. If we put to death the deeds of the body, that's strong words. Because what is the nature of sin? Sin attracts, sin seduces, and then sin enslaves. And there's no negotiating with it, and there are no light and momentary measures that won't do. You have to put them to death. It's, it's, a, it's a death battle. And so, as I'll, I'll say later in the sermon too, something John Owen said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. It's not a, they can't coexist. The longer it lasts, the longer it festers, the more work it does. 
But for him to say, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, he's saying that, yes, it's a fight to follow him, but this fight is not unassisted. You're not out there on your own. You've, you've not been sent into the ring. Ding, ding, ding. Go get him, Rocky. It's up to you. No. This fight is not unassisted. It's by the Spirit. What does it mean to put to death the deeds of the body? It's, it, this death is talking about seeing the sin for what it is in the fog of war. It is having seen and exposed and, and to reject it and to deny it and to unclench from it because you see that there's folly in it. Because you see and feel that there's an offense in it. Now, at the end of the sermon, we'll talk about the practical ways in which we put to death the deeds of the body. But for now, the Spirit assists us. Both preemptively and, how about we put it this way, post-mortem. By preemptively, there is an awakening, a warning, a whispering that comes your way. Uh, We had a bear tear the door off of a storage container we have on some property. And so, rule number one, don't get between a bear and the food. And, or her cubs, for that matter. What does it mean to put to death the deeds of the body? It's to take the warning. You see a bear approaching. You, you realize, I don't think I want to get near that thing. And then, what do you do? You run. You run. Oh, brilliant. You've been awakened to it. The whisper comes. The warning comes. Yep, I'm out. But, what happens if um, you didn't reject, if you, re- if you reject the warning, you thought it was no problem, and then you get mauled, and a mark is left? What, what is the Spirit up to then? It, you may have rejected the warning, but, but now the Spirit is involved in helping you to grieve. Not to shame, not to condemn, not to say you're worthless, but let's grieve this, let's feel this, Let's feel this. Because you'll never give up on something that you don't feel like is an offense or foolish. Spirit's involved both in a preemptive way and a post-mortem way. And if I, you know what? I'm going to illustrate it through, here's a shocker, from a Lord of the Rings clip. <laughs> I've shown it to you before in, others, in other moments. But, you know, the whole narrative arc of the whole trilogy, right, is about this ring of power that everybody who has it, it corrupts them. And the challenge is, how do I, how do I let it go? How, how do I put to death this thing, this allurement, that the more I hold on to it will just hold me captive in ways that I never bargained for? Well, here's the moment when Bilbo, on his 111st birthday, is about to leave the Shire, and he's sitting with Gandalf, and, well, this exchange ensues. There are many magic rings in this world, Bilbo Baggins, and none of them should be used lightly. If it's just a bit of fun. Oh, you're probably right, as usual. You will keep an eye on Frodo, won't you? Two eyes. Yes. As often as I can spare them. I'm leaving everything to him. What about this ring of yours? Is that staying too? Yes, yes. Send an envelope over there on the mantelpiece. No. Wait, it's... Here in my pocket. <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that odd now? Yes. After all, why not? Why shouldn't I keep it? I think you should leave the ring behind. 
Is that so hard? Well, no. And yes. Now it comes to it. I don't feel like parting with it. It's mine. I found it. It came to me. Who's managed to get angry? Well, if I'm angry, it's your fault. It's mine. It's been called that before, but not by you. What business is it of yours when I do with my own things? I think you've had that ring quite long enough. You want it for yourself? Come Baggins! Do not take me for some conjurer of cheap tricks. I am not trying to rob you. I'm trying to help you. fantasy novel, but what is putting death at the ease of the body? It's learning to let it go. But you will discover in the process of putting to death the deeds of the body that very experience. It wouldn't be a death match if you didn't really want what you know you need to let go. And you will be along the way tempted to treat friends as if they're enemies. That's the part of it. That's the heart of it. And that's a good segue into talking about then, if, if that's a picture of what it means to put to death the deeds of the body, it's, this is a great picture for that because so far I've kind of told you, well, okay, sin's a real thing and um, maybe obsession is not the right approach to it, but, but neither is it to sort of play with it. And that's why we're going to talk about what does it mean to fight to follow in a filial way? Now, okay, filial, filial, who talks like that? Um, the Latin speakers do. What's filius? Filia, filius, son, filia, daughter. Filial just means child, son or daughter. We fight to follow in a filial way in, by way of contrast in how you and I might think of fighting or putting to death the deeds of the body. You know, okay, right, embrace virtue. Next week we're going to talk about Ben Franklin's version of how to um, approach virtue. Virtue's good. I, I recommend it. So does the Lord. But it's really easy to get swept up in this whole conversation about putting to death the deeds of the body as if this is all about your personal growth. This is about me optimizing my life uh, this is a me about maximizing my effectiveness and efficiency. This is about me trying to avoid regret. All of those things are fine. But if those are the main things that drive you, you have missed the point. Because what all of those things are, living your best life now, seeking your own personal growth, self-improvement, what's at the center of that? Yourself. Putting to death the deeds of the body, you are not at the center. And you don't want to be at the center because if you turn putting to the death the deeds of the body as if it's all about your own moral growth so that you can feel better about yourself, you are starting from a place that sets you up for something awful. 
we're talking about not how to make yourself better. We're talking about learning to put to death the deeds of the body in terms of identity that is bound up inextricably with this idea of belonging. Who do you belong to? That's what has to drive this. Not just five years from now, I'll feel better about myself. Five years from now, I will um, have made an improvement in all things. Look, those things are fine, but they're just not enough, and I'll tell you why. If you approach the project of putting to death the deeds of your body in that way, and, and Jesus almost becomes like, Jesus who? Where is he? What has he done? It doesn't matter. I just need to be better. This is what happens. You've set yourself up for failure in this sense. Because if that's your motivation, then when you fail it, and you will, then you will conclude you're a failure. When you do that which is displeasing, you will conclude you are a displeasure. That's at your core. If you leave Jesus off the table and make your own self-betterment as the motivation for casting off sin, however you might define it, you have set yourself up for a problem. And if God is even in the room with you thinking about putting to death the deeds of the body, the best you might even hope for is to think, well, God is just all about judging me for when I screwed up. No! This approach is instead something else. What has to be at the center is not fearing the consequences. It's not off the table to be worried about whether it's unwise, but it's just not enough. Because you have to put back on the table at all times this question, what has Jesus done for me in this regard? There's a theologian of the 17th century, his name was Jacob Ursinius, and he made this distinction, which is where I get my idea here, between a servile fear of God and a filial fear of God. And most of the time, we don't have a clue about the difference, and we wander more in this. What's a servile fear? Servile, servant. What is a servant or a slave most afraid of? The punishment of their master for disobeying his will. That's a servile fear. What's a filial fear? It is one who has love and confidence in the Lord's love, and because of that, has a certain fear of even offending that love, of violating that love. That's a filial fear. It does not wish to turn away its face from the Lord, and in consequence of that, it, it, it just, it, 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 uh, they shudder a little bit to think of the idea of doing that which is displeasing. But that all comes down to an understanding of your status. A servile fear is only afraid. A filial fear is something else. Look, I've said this before. When you're a kid, most of the time, what motivates you to do something and not other things is you're afraid. Oh, are you going to get busted? You are going to get so busted, right? And look, that's fine. When you you got to start somewhere. But a mature, filial affection for the Lord is not mostly about, I'm afraid of what's going to happen to me. It is the confidence in his love, and it is that love that leads you to desire what he wants. What would inspire that? Not just giving you a laundry list of do's and don'ts, 
But the fact that you've been given, it says, Paul says, the spirit of adoption. Given the spirit of adoption. You've received it. You've received something implanted in you that confirms to you that you belong to him and it had nothing to do with you. In fact, it had everything to do in spite of you. You didn't merit it. He wasn't impressed by you. He just loved you and he gave it to you. The spirit of adoption. And the reason he uses the word adoption is this, look, this. Everything that is Jesus's is now yours. You're an heir. You all have the rights and privileges therein at being a part of his family, and it was at great cost to bring you there, but not at your cost. That's what it means to believe in Jesus. That you have become part of his family on the basis of what he has done, and you are not a natural-born citizen into his family. You've been adopted into that family because it had to have been his choice, nothing that you did to impress him. That's the nature of adoption. And then some people hear that, maybe some of you here today, and go, that's, that's mm, man, that sounds great. I wish it were true. It sounds too good to be true. And for others that will say, that's the song of my heart. It's what holds me up when all I want to do is weep. That is to live in a filial way where love and trust emerge in us because you believe that the Lord through Jesus has reconciled you to himself and made you his on the basis of his work. And it's the only way to fight. If you fight from any other place, any other basis, you have set yourself up for a profound disillusionment. That's a fact of our faith. It is a core doctrine. You can't let that one go. But that's a fact that is different from facts like water boils at 212 or that the sky is blue because of the way in which light is refracted off of the atmosphere and things like that. Those are facts and you can file them but this fact that you're adopted it has to be in a different way and that's where I want to kind of get here to the, the last part. Our fight to follow is from a filial way but from a filial affection. Now let's stop for a minute and let's define our terms. I kind of heard this distinction recently. I think I buy it. Maybe you could quibble with it. There are moods. Moods kind of correlate maybe, maybe with how we're feeling in a moment, but also maybe a temperament or maybe a personality thing. That's a mood. You know, people are kind of naturally sanguine, naturally kind of melancholic. That's a thing. It's real. I don't want to get into the reads there, but that's a, that's a mood. And then there's emotions. Obviously, you feel that. I'm, I'm, you know, they churn up in you, and, and you can feel absolutely terrified by something, or you can be in awe of the fireworks, and you feel something. That's an emotion. And a lot of the times, not all the time, you feel stuff, and you don't really know why you're feeling that. And it's actually in moments like that where you've got to kind of stop and go, why am I feeling that? Because it's just sort of this opaque thing. I don't get it. And why am I anxious? Why, why is it there? Those are emotions. An affection is distinct from an emotion, so I've heard recently, is that an affection is always tied to an idea, to a, a claim, to a truth, to a belief. It's not vague. It's not, I just feel that way. 
It's always tied to something. Well, that's what's at work here. An affection is something where you are hearing something and you are believing something and it is the Spirit who helps you believe it. And so you hear in verses 14 and 15 and 16, rather, it goes like this. You didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back in... Wait, where did I... I forgot. Yeah, here we go. Um, you didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. You hear the word fear? You hear the word cry? Those are emotions. Those are feelings. But what leads someone to cry, Abba, Father, is to believe that he is our Father. To believe that God is more than just Grandpa in the sky. But one who knows you and loves you anyway, and who is for you in ways that you could never imagine, that you are his adopted child, an idea by which you are meant to be moved Moved in your spirit, lowercase s, this sort of inner being, your, kind of your mind thing that the scripture speaks of, by the one who is the spirit in you, the spirit of adoption. That's an affection, and it shapes your will. It leads you to choose some things because you believe that is true of you and chooses you not to, be, to choose other things because of what you believe about your place in his world and how he thinks of you. And that's an idea that the Spirit has to work in you that at times is out to reassure you of it when you doubt it or to remind you of it and to help you grieve in whether you have forgotten it or rejected it. And how would you be moved by that? Because the Spirit is at work in you to move it in you. As if a coach was looking you in the eye to remind you of something true and important. You know that moment kind of at the very midpoint of the narrative arc of Harry Potter when he's facing he who shall not be named for the very first time? And right there, when it feels like all is lost, who shows up but Harry's dead parents? And they are there to remind him that they were never gone and they are there to run cover for him and to reassure him that he is not alone in this. And that both protects and encourages. And in that moment, I, I think that's a sort of a picture of what it means for the Spirit to move in us in ways to remind us, to reassure, and to steal. When that darkness happens. Now look, I'm, I'm landing the plane. Some people may hear all this and go, man, you Christians, you really fixated on whether or not you believe that you're beloved. Like, talk about an obsession. Why are you so worried about that? The world is on fire. People are dying. Policies are made that you are bewildered by. There's a thousand things that you and I could get involved in today that would be of help for the common good. And you people are fixated on your belovedness. You have no good, like, Marx was right. You're an opiate. You're too heavenly minded to be too earthly good. That's the argument. And at one level, I get it. But let me remind you of something that T.S. Eliot wrote. Half the harm that is done in this world is, to due, to, is due to people who want to feel important. 
They don't mean to do harm, but the harm does not interest them, or they don't see it, or they justify it because they're absorbed in the endless struggle to think well of themselves. This is why it matters whether you believe that you're beloved of God and adopted into his family. Because you will find all sorts of other ways to feel important. God help Oliver Anthony. The guy that wrote, he was nowhere last week. And then he writes a song, drops one song, and now he's got 10 million people that want to hear him play. He's going to play over in East North Carolina today. One song. And now the whole world thinks he's important. That man could do amazing things with the influence he now has. But God forbid, God help him, that he doesn't let his importance become his belovedness. God help you. In whatever way you are trying to feel important today, what either way I am trying to feel important today, to make that my belovedness. Because you and I can do all sorts of harm and we don't even know it and we think we're doing right. That's why it matters. That's why it matters. So, what do we do with all that? John Owen, I already said it. Here's the mandate of the text. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. That's it. You can choose not to believe that, or you can. Wherever it lurks, we, we have to kind of go after it. How do we do that? If Jesus is not Lord, I, I would pray that you might believe that he is Lord first, because the rest of the project is sunk if that's not first and foremost in your head. Otherwise, you really will turn it into a world of self-improvement, and then guess what? When you fail it, then you're a failure. I said that already. And not to oversimplify the whole process of putting to death the deeds of the body, but I think you could boil it down to three little things. It's a mental act, it's a prayerful act, and it's a communal act. You have to think about sin. Before, John Owen says, before you run to the claims that for your sin you are forgiven, true as that may be, it is worth asking yourself, how'd that happen? How'd we get here? This article I read this morning, another reviewer of Barbie, Leslie Jameson, she wrote this. What I fear about my daughter's attachment to her Barbies is something I fear in myself, that I serve the wrong gods, false ones. But we can't simply reject our false gods. We must figure out what they've done for us. That's thinking. That's reflecting. There is no putting to death the deeds of the body until you start asking yourself, how did I get here? And what does that deed of the body do for me? Because I wouldn't be here if I didn't like it and I didn't think there was a payoff in it. It is mental. It's also prayerful. Because how many times do I find sin lurking in my own heart and I go, I have no idea how to turn this one off. I believe, help me in my unbelief. I am enslaved to my own passions and my own fears, and I don't know what to do with this, so I'm crying out to you. Please remind me of things that are bigger than this moment, things that are bigger than my sin. I, I, don't, I don't think you do this without thinking about it, like, Paul, like John Owen says, and without praying about it. But, on a last note, it's also communal. You have to be thoughtful. You have to be prayerful. You have to also be surrounded. Because those folks that come to the confessional with scrupulosity, that's a real thing. And if you were isolated and kind of 
worry about your sin a lot, then it's very possible that you're actually doing damage to yourself because you don't have anybody else talking to your life. I mean, that's why those people go to confessional. Yesterday, I spent two hours uh, de-weeding the fire pit. I, I looked at it, and it made me cringe. It almost made me want to go to a, a priest and confess. <laughs> for, forgive me, Father, for I have not de-weeded. <laughs> and it, you, you have to go deep. You have to figure out how it gets there. That's the prayerful part. That's the thoughtful part. But if you're not careful and you're not around anybody, you can really let this idea of sinfulness so grip you that you are terrified by everything that you do. And you know somebody that really gets that, that we're not laughing at from a, this American life moment? It's Alan Noble. He, he, he belongs to a sister church um, where the wind comes sweeping down the plain. And um, he speaks very candidly about how his faith, if he's not careful, can actually put him in that place of scrupulosity. And so he says, at the end of an article that's in your resource talk this week, he says this, this life demands more of us than we can imagine, but not more than we can bear, because we don't bear it alone. True conscience is not a hyper-individual inner experience, but a knowing with others, a cleaving to the wisdom of God's word and the witness of his body here on the earth, the church. Conscience understood this way demands not that we follow every whim of our fallen minds, but that we collectively, collectively trust in the grace and goodness of the Father. I commend us all and myself to the task of putting to death the deeds of the body in a filial way from a spiritual affection. I do not commend that work to you on your own without talking with others, without confessing your sins one to another, like James says. Because you get caught up in your head and all sorts of bad stuff can happen. Just ask Alan. Okay. That's it. That's our task. Let's pray. I don't think you mean to overwhelm us with an invitation now to do an inventory of our hearts. I, I dare say if we sat for 30 minutes and tried to in inventory everything that we think might be it wrong, we would we would crater and get in the fetal position. I don't think you intend that for us, sir. It's only by your spirit that you would bring, a, a, bring us to an awareness of what is killing us on the inside, but which, we, but which is doing something for us at the same time. I would pray, Father, for my own heart and for anybody in this room. If they don't, if Jesus is not yet a beautiful that you, by your spirit, would convert them to a sense of his beauty. And then for all of us, that you might help us to see sin not as an obsessive thing that we must rid ourselves of, but not as a trifling thing that we can simply ignore. Help us, Father, by your spirit.